looking at chapter 9 of Hebrews tonight. As the Latins say, festinilente, which means make haste slowly. We're not going to be rushing through this because there are a number of challenges here in the first 10 verses. And so consequently, if I get to verse 10 tonight, then I will have succeeded in achieving a partial goal. Let's pray. An eternal redemption, Lord, is described here. What wondrous grace is this? that you would even condescend to redeem us. And then not only save us from the sins that we have committed in time, but you would wash them so thoroughly and place them so far behind you as the east is from the west that They would never rise before us for all eternity. Only an eternal person could perform such an eternal redemption. And thank you for your eternal Son, our precious eternal Redeemer. And for this beautiful epistle and the great theological skill of this writer under the inspiration of your blessed and Holy Spirit. Now do teach us as we are encouraged to draw near unto you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, keeping in mind this pilgrimage theme that I have emphasized throughout the epistle, the seventh chapter of Hebrews described a superior priesthood, but the institution of the Levitical priesthood in comparison to that superior priesthood of the Son of God, namely an institution which has a redemptive historical origin. It originates in the wilderness, the wilderness sojourn, the wilderness pilgrimage of the people of God. Now, likewise, in chapter 8, the first six verses describe a superior tabernacle. But once again, we are face to face with the tabernacle theme, which is also instituted in the redemptive historical wilderness paradigm or the pilgrimage of the people of God redemptive historically from Egypt to Canaan. The end of the eighth chapter, verses 7 to 13, is a superior covenant. 
And we are reminded of the institution of that Mosaic covenant, once again instituted in the midst of that redemptive historical pilgrimage, that sojourn of the people of God to Mount Sinai and from Mount Sinai to the Jordan. Now this evening, as the author unfolds these themes, which are wilderness or sojourn themes, as he unfolds his story from priesthood to tabernacle to covenant and now to sacrifice, we are uh, face to face with another institution which occurred redemptive historically in that wilderness sojourn of the children of Israel, namely the sacrifices which were offered at the Levitical tabernacle. All right, now, this motif of pilgrimage and sojourn is underscoring, once again, the title of this letter to the Hebrews, to the sojourners who have a better priesthood, to the sojourners who have a better tabernacle, to the sojourners who have a better covenant, and now in this ninth chapter, to the sojourners who have a better sacrifice. All right, well, let's begin by looking at the structure of this ninth chapter. And we'll start as we've done in past weeks. We'll look at the relationship between the end of the previous chapter and the beginning of chapter 9. And then we'll look down to the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10. And in so doing, we are looking for what kind of device... Go ahead, Terry. A hook word. Exactly right. Now, Terry, do you see the one in chapter 8, verse 13, which is duplicated in chapter 9, verse 1? Covenant is not in the text in the first verse. That is in the Greek text. You'll see it in italics in your English translation, which means it's understood but it is, and it's properly inserted to help us understand, but it's not in the Greek text. So I'm looking for a word which is not italicized. Marge? First. first. The word first is the hook pattern between the end of eight and the beginning of nine. Now, if we skip down to the end of this ninth chapter, as Terry Uh, Pointed out, we're looking once again for a hook pattern or these crocheted words that this tie the one narrative or the one chapter into the next. And what words in verse 28 of chapter 9 and verse 1 of chapter 10 do you see that are similar? They're not exactly the same, but they have the same lemma or root. 
word offered. You'll notice the word offered, past tense in verse 28, and then offer, present tense, in verse 1 of chapter 10. All right, so once again, our writer is tying together his uh, sequential narrative. And so we'll have to see if he continues this pattern uh, when we get to chapter 10. But going back now to the first verse of chapter 9. So we should have first and first in 13, 8, 13, and 9, 1, and offered and offer in 9, 28, and 10, 1. Now there's another word in the first verse that is parallel to a word in verse 10. It may be different in some of your translations, but it is translated the same in the New American Standard. Regulations, correct. I don't know what the NIV says there, but at any rate, the word regulations appears in those two places and forms, as it were, a kind of bracket or frame around the first ten verses. All right, now that brings us to verse 11. And you'll notice a word or name in 11 that is also duplicated in 14. In the Greek text of verse 11, this word or name is first in the verse. Christ. And in verse 14, you see the name Christ repeated again. In verse 12, we have an act or work of Christ featured. So between 11 and 14, there's kind of a feature of the word redemption, which is also a word which occurs in verse 15. So you would want to put on the left-hand side of the outline under at 9.11 Christ and at 9.14 Christ. And in 9.12, the word redemption, and right underneath it, under word, underneath the word redemption in verse 15, repeating the word redemption again. But in verse 15... And in verse 16 and in verse 17, there is a word which occurs four times. Covenant Covenant is right, K. And you see it twice in verse 15, once in verse 16, and once in verse 17. All right, as we pointed out, the word regulations in verse 1 and 10 is kind of like a frame or bracketing device. Christ in 11 and 14 is a bracketing device. And covenant in 15 and 17 is a bracketing device. In other words, he's using vocabulary uh, duplications and uh, repetitions in order to break up 
the sections of this narrative, of this chapter. So we want to look at an additional pattern of uh, breaking up a section, beginning in verse 18. And actually, from 18 to 22, we have a perfect chiasm. Now, as you look at the letter A and what we're seeking in verse 18, it's going to be parallel, at least very close, to a phrase in verse 22. So A and A prime are going to match one another or match one another very closely. So as you examine those two verses, can you pick out the phrase that recurs in 18 and 22? Without blood blood in 18, and what is it, Loretta, in 22? Without Without shedding blood, although the words are very similar in the Greek. All right, so there is the AA prime parallel. Now, in verse 19, we find a phrase that is also similar to a phrase in verse 22 as well. The BB prime. More than one word. Well, notice the word law. The word law occurs in verse 19 and occurs in a phrase, according to the law. And in verse 22, the very same phrase, according to the law. So there's the B and B prime similarity. Now in verse 19, another word that is duplicated in verse 21, C C prime. This is just one word, not a phrase this time. Sprinkled, very good. And finally, at the center of the chiasm, a word in verse 20. Blood. Without blood, without shedding of blood, but blood at the center. All right, so the chiasm moves from a consideration of sacrifice by blood offering. And without blood or without shedding of blood, there is no acceptance of the offering. So blood is the central element in this chiasm. It is the blood of the covenant. All right, now that unit has its own structure because of the frame at every point in the chiasm except for 
the central hinge point in letter D. But the outside, A and A prime, is a virtual frame duplicate. Now, in verse 23, we find two words, actually uh, three occurrences of the uh, same word in 23 and 24. No, heaven, heaven and heavenly, all right, in 23, heaven and heavenly, and in 24, heaven again. Now, also in verse 24, you'll notice that you have the word Christ again. So, heaven and heavenly in 23, heaven in 24, and Christ also in 24, We have three uses of the term heaven in these two verses. And actually, I'm going to include verse 25 uh, in that section, which leaves verses 26, 27, and 28. And you'll notice in those three verses, a phrase or a word occurs three times once in each of the three verses. Marge, you got it? Once. Once. Or literally once for all. It is this very important Greek word in the epistle to the Hebrews, hapax, which means once for all, once with finality. The finality of God who has spoken in times past by the prophets to the patriarchs and the fathers is spoken with finality in these last days by his son. So this term hapax here has the sense of eschatological finality. There is no son of God coming after this son of God. There is no sacrifice coming after he makes his sacrifice. There is no priest after he comes as priest. There is no high priest after him. He is the final. He is the eschatologically final. He is the hapax once and for all. Very important word to our author. And here you see it occurring in staccato-like fashion. Just like a shot, just like a machine gun, he's ramming it home. Bang, bang, bang at the end of this ninth chapter. Well, stepping back from this uh, outline, from this structural pattern, let's notice one final comparison between the beginning of this chapter, first ten verses, And the end of this chapter, the last five verses. We've been dealing since chapter 7 with this element of contrast. 
contrast between the sons of Levi and the son of God in chapter 7. Contrast the beginning of chapter 8 between this earthly tabernacle and this heavenly tabernacle. The end of chapter 8 contrasts between the old or first covenant and the new or second covenant. This element of contrast is behind his uh, interrelationship between the institutions and motifs of the former era and the institutions and motifs of the end of the age or the age which has come upon us with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. But let's look at how he brings this contrast out in this ninth chapter between the opening section and the concluding section. Notice verse 7. Look at verse 7. And then look at verse 25. You're looking for an element of contrast between the language of verse 7 and the language of verse 25. Terry? No. Blood that is not his own. Pardon? Blood that is not his own. Not quite, but you're in this right category. Verse 7. The word offers. The high priest offers... For himself, verse 25, Christ offers himself, not for himself. You see the contrast. Because, well, why? Why, Kay? You're nodding your head up and down. You've got a big smile on your face. Why? Why 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 the contrast? Well, because it's so different. Tell me more. Tell me more. The high priest is offering blood of a lamb for himself. For himself. Why? Because of his sin. Because he's a sinner. Christ offers himself, not for himself, because he's he's sinless. Exactly. Notice the contrast. So this section at the opening is featuring something which has to do with the Levitical priesthood as we'll see in detail. At the end, it's the priesthood of Christ. It's how the Levitical high priest offers for himself because he's included in the sin offering that is delivered up. But Christ is the sin offering. 
He's not offering himself for his sins. He's offering himself for the sins of others, for our many sins. Because, as Kay indicated, he is without sin himself. This is a, <clears throat> this is a direct reflection upon the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, there's one other <clears throat> small contrast here between the beginning and ending section of this chapter. You'll notice in verse 1, <clears throat> the word earthly, at least in the New American Standard, the earthly sanctuary, and in verse 23, the heavenly sanctuary or the heavenly arena. So the contrast at the opening between this earthly dimension and the heavenly dimension. Any questions about the structure as we labeled it? Any of you have any questions about what the line should be labeled? Or did you get it all as we went through it? Loretta? The second line at the beginning, the ones to the right, I didn't get those two. Regulations? Oh. Similar in verse 10 to regulations. So they're parallel. Yes, Mary Lou? The uh, uh, last B and A. The last B and A. Okay, the B prime. Right. According to law, the same as B above it. Okay. And then the A prime, as Loretta pointed out, the earlier without shedding blood. The virtually the same Greek construction as without blood in A above. All right, now let's take a look at the units of this chapter. <clears throat> 9, 1 to 10, then 11 to 17, then 18 to 22, and 23 to 28. First of all, I've left a blank before the word covenant in that sequence. What covenant is under consideration in verses 1 to 10? The first or old or, can we put a name on it, Ben? Mosaic covenant, okay, fine. All right, so we have the Mosaic covenant in the first 10 verses. What about verses 11 to 17? Be talking about the Mosaic covenant in 11 to 17. No, what covenant? The new covenant. New covenant in Christ. Now verses 18 to 22. What covenant is he describing there? Back to you, Ben. The Mosaic covenant again. And finally in verses 23 to 28. Back to you, Scott. The new covenant again. Notice the reflection, the interchange, contrast between Mosaic and New Covenant or Old Covenant and New Covenant. Okay, as we go through this chapter, there's a very uh, interesting paradigm of sequence, and that sequence is contrastive. Once again, this great, this larger motif of the writer contrasting the old and the new era, the former and the latter days. All right, now, 
Let's look a little more closely on the right-hand side of your outline, beginning at the top with verses 1 to 6. What is he talking about in those first six verses? About the tabernacle. All right, now, uh, okay, uh, just stay on the stay on the floor, so to speak. I'm going to come back to you. Uh, in verses 6 to 10, what's he talking about? Is he still talking about the tabernacle? Yes. He is. Well, then, what's the difference? What's the difference between 1 to 6 and 6 to 10? You're right about uh, 1 to 6. What is there? Okay? This is a general description of the tabernacle in the first six verses. But what about verses 6 to 10? Art? Uh, priest offering the sacrifice. Where? In, in, in the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, but where in the tabernacle? Mark? In the Holy of Holies. So notice, he's, he's given a general description of the tabernacle in the uh, first six verses, and then he goes to a specific description of what occurs in the Holy of Holies. So he becomes much more specific as he moves through this section. Now, we already noted that that word regulations in verse 1 and verse 10 frames this unit. So this unit, which deals with the tabernacle in general and the Holy Holies specifically, is framed by this bracketed regulations term. All right, now, verses 11 to 14. We already pointed out that those three verses are also bracketed or framed. By what name? The name Christ. Very good. And the focus within those verses is upon his blood. Notice verse 12 and verse 13 and verse 14. So, the frame that brackets 11 to 14 is Christ and his blood. 15 to 17 then. Obviously, this is a new covenant motif, the blood of Christ. All right? 15 to 17. What's the frame, what's the word that frames this unit? Covenant. The word covenant frames it. In fact, it occurs four times, but at beginning verse 15 and end verse 17, the word covenant is here. And what's the focus of this unit? The focus of this unit is upon death. Death in relationship to covenant. So, once again, this is a new covenant motif. It is the death or the covenant death of Christ. All right, now we've already noted the chiasm in verses 18 to 22, but we can break up that chiasm in terms of two units once again. From 18 to 20, getting to the center of the chiasm, the D element or the hinge element. We move from without blood to blood, 
And then in 20 to 22, without blood again. So it is blood that frames the unit or bloodshed and blood, which is the hinge of the unit. It's the center of the unit. And once again, this is the blood of the Mosaic Covenant. This is the old covenant motif. All right. So he has a pattern here of dual sections. Dual sections which are bracketed until verses 23 to 25 and 26 to 28. He drops his framing device and he uses another device. In 23 to 28, we noticed that he uses the same word, heaven or heavenly. And he uses it how many times? Do you remember? Go ahead. Yes. Right, Robert. Three times. All right. Now, in verses 26 to 28, he uses another word three times. Once for all. Okay. In the last five verses... He changes his pattern, or we should say the last six verses if we're counting them individually. He changes his pattern from a framing pattern, a framing device, to the rule of threes, what's called the rule of threes. He uses the same lemma three times, and he does it in three successive sections, in two successive sections. Now, what's the significance of the rule of threes? Three little pigs. Three blind mice, three temptations of Jesus, three denials of Peter. What is it about the rule of threes? It's a common literary device. It's a common story device. Why? Why the rule of threes? Completeness. Completeness. Good. Anything else? Louder. Trinity. Trinity, oh, I like that, but uh, probably not in terms of a literary device. Demonic device, people remember in threes. Can, can remember better, that's exactly right. Can some, can, and spur the memory, okay? The mama bear, the papa bear, and the baby bear. You know, it's a nice little family circle, right? Okay. In other words... Three bears is more satisfying than two bears for a story, right? Three blind mice is better than two blind mice because there's more action. Okay? All right, you get the idea. It's not only completeness, as Pete pointed out. It's an idea of it's more satisfying to have a rule of threes, to have a threesome. Okay? Well, that's what he's doing here. He is making his theological argument more satisfying from the threefold mention of heaven or heavenly and the threefold mention of is done once for all. Twice isn't enough to make it satisfying to underscore what Christ has done. It's done once and for all. Bang, bang, bang. All right, so he concludes this chapter, which is well articulated and well structured in little uh, uh, dual frame patterns with a rule of threes.
to bring it to its climax. And as we'll see, we're going to have to wait till next week to see this, the climax at 26 and 28 is quite profound, quite profound. And we'll understand a little better why he does it next week. All right, do you have any questions about uh, this breakup of the units of the chapter? Do you need me to repeat any of uh, the labels on the verses, etc.? Go ahead, Scott. Uh, in 18 to 20 and 20 to 22, you had the blood of the Mosaic Covenant. What, did you see any differences there between the two sections? Actually, it's a chiasm, and it's hinging upon the blood of the covenant in verse 20. And so what we're doing is we're sandwiching the blood of the covenant between without blood or without shedding of blood. The motif is repeated. This could, this could be a rule of threes as well, but I think it's more of a chiastic uh, reflection. It's a chiastic uh, mirror reflection. But there are two distinct units in the chiasm. All right, now, uh, now that we've got that all squared away, or at least you've got your outlines labeled, let's go back to the first verse and examine just for a moment this, uh, the regulations of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, these are the regulations according to that first verse of divine worship. Now, from whom did these regulations for divine worship originate? From God himself. Worship where? Where in the wilderness? At the tabernacle. All right. Now, the tabernacle is the, give you the Hebrew phrase that won't mean a whole lot to some of you. Kahal Yahweh. The Kahal Yahweh. Meaning the assembly of the Lord. Right? The assembly of the Lord, the kahal, is the gathering of Israel at the tabernacle. Alright, so this is the place where worship occurs, and it is the place where God has displayed the regulations for divine worship. Now notice that first verse. They had regulations. The first covenant had Regulations. Now, is that just a statement of fact? Well, sure they had regulations of divine worship. We go back and we'll read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We're going to read all about it. Of course they had that. Or is there something more in that verb had? Good. Because of why? Verse 10. Verse 10. You're on the right track, Cheryl. But I want you to see the relationship that he puts. Until the time of Reformation. Until the time of Reformation. All right. So they had these regulations. Old Covenant. Time of Reformation. New Covenant. Also has regulations. So had may be a reference to the fact that they had them and we still do. But not the same. Because the Reformation has occurred. All right, now Reformation here is not 1517 and Martin Luther. You understand that? Okay. 
Now, what did this time of reformation in verse 10 do to the regulations of divine worship in the Mosaic Covenant? It reformed them. Reformed them. Altered them. Perfected them, which is a favorite word of our author, isn't it? Perfected, it means they reached their purpose. They reached their goal. Fulfilled them. That is, filled up their meaning to the fullness. Okay? Abolished them, Ben? Abolished them? Yes. Abolished them. Did it abolish divine worship? No, it abolishes the regulations of divine worship of that era, but it does not abolish divine worship. So, having abolished that regulation of that era, it brings in a reformation of regulations, verse 10. But regulations now suited or appropriate to the new covenant, to the new era. All right, well, then what would be the new covenant regulations principle? You see the issue here? You see, he's drawing the contrast between Old Testament, Old Covenant regulations, divine worship principle. But he says at a time of reformation, they had it, we have What regulations do we have then for our new covenant worship? Well, it would have to be understood by this community of Christians to whom he is writing that they have gone through the transition from the old covenant regulations of divine worship to a new covenant regulation principle for divine worship. They had the regulations under the first or old covenant implies we have regulations under the second or new covenant. In other words, we've still got a regulative principle. The time of reformation is a time of new regulations. Notice the 10th verse. So these regulations in the time of Reformation would be then consistent with the better era which has arrived in Christ Jesus. Now, we have a passage in the Apostle Paul which, in fact, articulates the fundamental principle of this New Testament or New Covenant worship that is the regulative principle under the New Covenant. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians 3 for a moment. Keep your finger in Hebrews 9. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 3. We're looking at verses 9 to 11. Second Corinthians 3, 9 to 11. All right, let's... Follow the apostles' thinking here. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, what's the ministry of condemnation? That's the old covenant order. Okay? It has glory. 
Much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. What's the ministry of righteousness? Terry? The new covenant. Okay, so the ministry of condemnation, old covenant, it has a glory. It has a glory in its regulations. Okay, the new covenant abounds in glory. That is, the covenant in Christ also has regulations. Well, what's the principle underlying these the new covenant regulatory principle? For indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it. What has no glory anymore? The old covenant, because the new covenant glory has surpassed it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. So what's our regulative principle? Our principle of worship is regulated by being in glory. In glory. What was the glory of the worship of the old covenant? It was the tabernacle or after Solomon, the temple. It was a high priest and priest of the Levitical order ministering in and out of the temple and the tabernacle. It was the bringing of blood sacrifices. It was rituals of food, drink, washings and bodily regulations. That was the glory of the regulative principle of the old order, the old covenant. Well, then, is the glory of new covenant worship regulated by tabernacle and temple, by high priests and priests, by blood sacrifices and rites of food, drink, washings, and bodily taboos? Is that the glory of the regulative principle of the new covenant worship? No, it is not. Part of the surpassing glory of New Testament worship is the cancellation of these beggarly elements of the former covenant era. They are annulled and abolished. Their glory has been surpassed. They have reached their purpose. They have been completed and fulfilled. We're not going to observe any Passover seders anymore. We're not going back to that former beggarly element of the glory of the old era. Well, then what remains? Paul says the surpassing glory that remains. We worship in glory. Second Corinthians three eleven. The spirit of reverent simplicity. The spirit of reverent simplicity. Reverent simplicity through the Holy Spirit of the risen Christ Jesus. Obviously, it's worship. That means it's reverent. Reverence consistent with the heavenly or eschatological, the in-glory character of New Testament worship. I'm just using Paul's language here. It is worship in glory. Reverence, which is Christ-centered. How could it be any other? Because heaven's worship is Christ-centered. It is centered on Christ in heaven right now. It is driven through Christ by the Spirit to us here. It is Christ-centered, reverently simple 
Christ-centered, glorious worship. Reverence, which is Christ-centered as heaven's worship in praise, in songs and hymns and psalms, songs and hymns and psalms, Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16. It is the full-orbed praise of the lips and hearts of the people of Christ in the Spirit. It is not restricted to the to the poetry and psalmody of the old order only. If it were, you would be robbing the saints in glory of their hymns to Christ. That's the reason it's good and right for you to sing hymns, because the angels are singing them, and the saints before the throne are singing them. Because they're singing from the other side of the resurrection. They're not singing from the nether side of he's coming to do all this. They're singing from this. He has come to do all of it. And we're going to sing twice over more than the songs. It's a better age of hymnody and song. Richer. My soul doth magnify the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. Now let thy servant depart in peace, O Lord. Glory to God in the highest. Worthy is the Lamb. Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto thee. These are New Testament hymns. Is it not appropriate to write in that spirit and sing in that spirit reverently, simply, with great joy and honor to the risen Christ. Not the hope to be risen Christ someday, but the risen Christ who's already singing the songs of eternity to his church, to his bride. Oh, yes. He sings the psalms to her, but he sings the hymns of his Christ centered in prayer. Prayer from the heart by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Simple, reverent worship, which is Christ centered in giving offerings and tithes. And more than tithes. In Christ, by the Spirit, giving oneself to God and sealing that union with other Christians by giving to their need. That's what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 16, 1, when he talks about the offering for the saints in Jerusalem from the Corinthian church. Simple, reverent worship which is Christ-centered in preaching, proclaiming the Word of God, in which preaching the heavenly arena is opened to the faith of those who worship 
in spirit and in truth. You want to let them walk out the door being bound by the world? Or do you want to bring them into the world to which they belong? Kingdom of heaven. That is the world to which you invite them to enter by worship. Simple, reverent worship, which is Christ-centered in the benediction upon the assembly of the people of God, the Kahal Yahweh of the end of the age. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead that great shepherd of the sheep, the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Even our writer concludes with benediction to the people, the Hebrews, the pilgrims, the sojourners, those who worship in the end of the age. What (coughs) regulates this new covenant divine worship is the heavenly, reverent simplicity of the surpassing glory of Christ's finished work and Christ's spirit in his ongoing work of centering our life, our devotion, our living upon himself, upon Christ. Christocentric worship now, even as heaven's present worship is Christocentric. I say it again. What they're singing and worshiping in heaven is worthy is the Lamb. Christ-centered worship, not self-centered worship. Christ-centered worship, not performance-centered worship. Christ-centered worship, not personality-centered worship. Christ-centered worship, not entertainment-centered worship. Brothers and sisters, there are no rock bands in heaven. There are not. Reverent, simple, honorable, and solemn worship. There is a regulative principle for new covenant worship, even as there was a regulative principle for old covenant worship. And that principle is simply worship in the spirit of the surpassing glory which has come to us in the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Son of God. Simple, reverent worship in Christ. That's what you see in the New Testament if you read the texts properly. 
no mitres, no robes, no processionals, no recessionals, no making signs and signals over the communion wafers or over the baptismal font. No fancy pomp and circumstance, smells and bells. No plain, simple, reverent worship. For you see, all those other things are like the beggarly elements of the former era, which have been abolished. Do you want to walk back into the era of pomp and circumstance, robes and processions, signs and offerings. You're going to walk away from your high priest who has taken you into the simplicity of heaven's own worship chamber and sanctuary itself. So, rejoice in the simplicity of the worship that has been granted to you by God through the New Testament revelation and has been understood so wonderfully and accurately by the regulative principle of the Reformed confessional tradition. Rejoice in that. You have been delivered from so much falderall and rigmarole that is pointless and useless, as our writer says. Keep it simple. Keep it plain and simple. Keep it Christ-centered, plain and simple. All right. Time for your break. Arguments? You don't get any money back because you didn't pay anything for it. No refunds. Incidentally, um, Mary, don't turn it on yet. Is there is for your meditation and edification. Uh, we printed it years ago in the seminary journal papers. I just happened to reread it last night and I decided I'd get a copy to you. Please read it carefully, all by yourself quiet and think about the rich imagery that he's providing for you there and just suck yourself into it come into it it's beautiful, beautiful stuff but it has nothing to do with what we're really talking about here tonight <laughs> the, broad, the broad general motif of uh, the incarnation of Christ okay <clears throat> Now, verse 1, this earthly sanctuary is, of course, the tabernacle. And what can you tell me about the architecture of the tabernacle? 
outer court. Okay? Very good. The priest can enter the inner part only once a year. What was the inner part? Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. Okay, so we've got a Holy of Holies in this tabernacle. Actually, it's a 10 by 10 by 10 cube. Okay, what else do we have in this architecture, this floor plan? The holy place. Okay, and it's actually 20 feet by 10. Now, what do we have out front here? Well, we'll call this the outer court, and we'll we'll include everybody. And we're not going to make the Herodian temple distinction between the court of the Jews and the court of Gentiles because we're looking at the tabernacle. So, what do we got outside here? We have an altar. What else? We have a laver. Correct. We have a laver. We'll put the laver there. <clears throat> now, inside this room, what do we have? The Holy of Holies. We have the Ark. Okay. What do we have in this room? We've got the lampstand. Okay. That's not actually an accurate representation, but we'll talk about that later. What else do we have there? We have a table. Okay. Is that it? We have a curtain. Okay, we're going to make this curtain here. What do we call this curtain? That's the veil. Now, let's step back for a moment and ask what's outside the outer court. What's up here? What's out here? What's down here? What's out here? Three tribes, three tribes, three tribes. Right. Israel is camped around. Okay, the perimeter of the tabernacle. Why? Why that architectural design? It's a duplication of what's in heaven, isn't it? Okay. What's the location then of the tabernacle in relationship to the camp of Israel? It's at the center, isn't it? It's the center of the life. It's the center of the camp. It's the center of the people's existence. All right. So in this central place, if we start here and walk towards the Holy of Holies, what is the drama or what is the kind of narrative paradigm that is occurring? What is... Let's start with the back room, the Holy of Holies. What is symbolic of this room? God's presence. God's glory is here. We can say this is the place of the glory presence of of God. And yet there's a curtain that bars that glory from the rest of the, uh, of the building, the rest of the tent. All right, so that's his glory presence there. 
what is here? So, so, so we're walking this way and, and, and we're coming back to God's glory presence in heaven way back here. Well, what's this region? Holy place. The holy place, yes, but in terms of God's heavenly glory, what would this be? Presence of his people. This would be the heavenly court. Where the ministry before the glory of God would be occurring. Okay? Instead of priests, of course, it's angels, etc. And what's out here? Well, out here is the world. So the, the paradigm, as we move from the outside towards the inner sanctum to the Holy of Holies, paradigm is to draw us into the world of God himself, to draw us out of the world into the glory of his very presence, his glory presence in the Holy of Holies. <clears throat> now, under this rubric, that is under the Old Covenant, the only way that that can happen is through a priest or through a order of priests. They go in and out on our behalf. But this is the paradigm of the tabernacle. It is an invitation in a physical, temporal arena. It is an invitation to come into the glory presence of God's heaven. All right, now, does this paradigm shed any light on 2 Corinthians 2, 12, 2. Let's go back, keep your finger in, in Hebrews 9. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 12, 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. The third heaven. <coughs> who's the man? Professor Sanborn, who's the man? Paul. Probably Paul. Probably Paul. Does the tabernacle paradigm shed any light upon this third heaven phrase that the apostle uses here? Well, consider for a moment. If the highest heaven, the third heaven, is the glory presence heaven, then what's the first heaven? The physical heaven. We're at the clouds in the sky above us. Okay? So, the physical or worldly heaven. And the uncreated heaven of God's essential glory presence. I say uncreated because this is God's essence himself. But God's essence is distinct from the court of heaven, the sea of crystal, Revelation 4, that is in front of his throne, his lapis lazuli throne, Ezekiel 1, upon which his glory sits and hovers. 
Alright, so we have the imagery of a created heaven where the angels and disembodied spirits minister before the crystal sea in front of the throne of God and overarching that lapis lazuli throne, of course, in the imagery of Ezekiel chapter 1 is the rainbow. This glorious portrait of the sea of crystal and the throne room of God in all of its radiance. But that courtroom, you see, is distinct from the essence of God himself in his very own Shekinah glory, his own glory presence. Okay? Well, is it possible that this pattern of the tabernacle is in fact what Paul is talking about? The material heavens... The immaterial heavenly court, though it's created, but it's immaterial. It's not time and space. This is time and space. Thinking about what we talked about last week. This is not time and space, but it is still a created arena because it has created beings in it. This is an uncreated arena because it is God himself. So this is the first heaven, the physical heaven. This is the heaven, the second heaven or the heavenly court of God's own uh, uh, dwelling place, so to speak. And this is the third heaven, which is the essence of God in the uncreated heaven. Now, I'm only making a suggestion, but I am intrigued by the fact that he says three heavens or third heavens, and I'm intrigued by the fact that we have three regions in this approach to the tabernacle and the temple. This will be duplicated in Solomon's temple. So is that a, 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 a illustration or an illumination of what Paul is describing there in 2 Corinthians 12? I simply submit it for your consideration. Now, looking at your outline, that paradigm was the uh, explanation of 2 Corinthians 12, 2. I printed the text from the New American Standard because we're going to be doing a kind of sword drill. We're going to be working back and forth between Old Testament passages as we look at uh, uh, this section, uh, particularly verses 1 to 5. In the second verse, it says the tabernacle was prepared. Notice verse 11 in this chapter. What word could we use as a synonym for prepared? Made Made or created. It's created. All right. The heavenly tabernacle is not created, is not of this creation. But this prepared, verse 2 tabernacle, is created. It's made, if you look back up to verse Uh, 5 of chapter 8, Moses has said, make it according to the pattern that was shown you in the mountain. All right, so this this tabernacle is definitely something that has been constructed or made by human hands. Now, notice again the contrast that's being made, as we've seen in our outline, between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant in Christ is a contrast into which the tabernacle fits and not the temple. I suggested to you that verse 13 of chapter 8 last week was probably written before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Now that's a suggestion. It's not a dogmatic statement. 
But nonetheless, here, we're clearly looking at something that does not involve the temple. The writer of Hebrews never talks about the temple. Why? Because his motif is sojourn. His motif is the pilgrimage of the Hebrews of the end of the age. And he wants to use a theme which fits that motif. And the temple doesn't fit it. The temple is not a sojourn motif. The temple is a settlement motif. So therefore, it's the tabernacle. Now, in that second verse... He goes on to say there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand. What's he mean, outer one? The alternate translation in the margin is the first one. What's the outer one? The holy place. So he's talking about what we call the holy place. The first room, the outer room. That is, the room which opens to the outside. This room has no opening. See, it's completely enclosed, completely shrouded. Now, inside, verse 2, inside this outer room is a lampstand. Now, what about that lampstand? Let's turn back to chapter 25 of Exodus. And we're going to be looking at chapter 25 of Exodus for a few moments, so you might keep your Bible open to that point. Exodus 25, 31 to 32. Art, do you have it? Uh, Yes. Would you read, please? Make a lampstand of pure gold and hammer it out, base and shaft. Its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms shall be of one piece with it. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. Very good. Now, notice that it does have a base and a central shaft, okay? But out of that base, out of that central shaft, come six branches. So we've got three on each side. That's the seven-branched menorah, or the seven-branched Lampstand or Liberace's piano light. For those of you that go back to Liberace's days. All right. This is what a menorah is. It is a seven branch lampstand. Now, the next thing, as you can see from the text in your outline, is the table. And the sacred bread. Now, in verse 23 of Exodus 25, you still have your Bible open there. Moses is told to make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, one cubit wide, and uh, one cubit wide and one and a half cubits high. Was to overlay it with gold and to put a gold rim on it. All right, so we have a table also in this holy place, and this is the table of bread, sacred bread as it's translated in the New American Standard. But notice what verse 30 says in Exodus 25. You shall set the bread, and the New American Standard is literal here, the bread of the face or the bread of the presence on the table. 
Now, the bread of the face, it's the bread which is before the face of God. That's literally what the old King James word showbread meant, spelled S-H-E-W, but pronounced showbread. It's not shoebread, it's pronounced showbread. It comes from a German word, Schaubraut, which uh, was translated directly into English as showbread. Because it's where God showed his presence. He showed his presence in the Holy of Holies. And the bread was in front of that place where he showed his presence. But this literal translation in uh, the New American Standard in Exodus 25.30 gives you the idea of the fact that this bread is before the face of God. It's before his very presence. In fact, that's how you talk about God's presence in the Old Testament, it's in front of his face. You're in front of his face. You're in the front of the face of Yahweh or the Lord God. <clears throat> All right, now, how many loaves of bread were on this table? Twelve. Why? One for each of the twelve tribes. Now, let's turn over to Leviticus chapter 24. There's a ritual associated with the loaves of bread, and it's found in Leviticus 24, 5 through 8. Now, in the fifth verse of chapter 24, Moses tells the sons of Israel to take fine flour and bake 12 cakes. Verse 6, set them in two rows six to a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. We already know about the pure gold table from Exodus 25, but here we're told that the 12 loaves are to be placed in two rows, six to a row. All right, now, how do you picture that? Two rows of six, parallel on the table, flat on the surface of the table, that's certainly possible. Any other possibility? It's interesting that in Jewish iconography, in Jewish portraits, particularly rabbinical uh, portraits, that is drawings of how this operated, they've actually got them stacked up. They've got two piles of six loaves side by side. Not six, not two rows of six, but two piles of six stacked one on top of another. Okay. I can't sort that out because I don't know where they got it. I would say from the passage we just read, Leviticus 24, 6, there's probably two rows with six in each row. Now, you're also, verse 7, to put frankincense on each row. And they will be offered by fire to the Lord. So we got a little piece of incense placed upon the top of each loaf. And that incense is going to be taken taken off and offered by fire to the Lord. Where is it going to be offered by fire? On what altar? The altar outside here? No, altar. On the incense altar. All right, so the incense goes on the loaf, and then it's gathered off when they change the loaves, and that incense is used on the altar of incense. And every Sabbath day, verse 8, <coughs> He shall set it in order before the Lord. It is an everlasting covenant, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place. So they change it every Sabbath day. Every week it's changed. 
Seven new loaves placed out on the table. What happens to the old loaves? The old loaves are eaten by the priests in the holy place. And we go all, we go through this pattern once again. All right. So we have the, the table of showbread, which was on the north side. This is the north side of the tabernacle with, its, uh, with the loaves there. Uh, verse 3. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies. What's he mean, this second veil? Well, back to Exodus 26. There are two veils. Exodus 26, 31 to 32, make a veil of blue and purple and hang it and hang the veil under clasps and bring in the ark of the testimony within the veil. All right. So this veil, this second veil that is being described here is obviously the veil which forms the barrier, the curtain barrier between the Holy of Holies and the holy place. But since the writer of Hebrews calls it the second veil, that implies what? A first veil. Where's the first veil? Back to Exodus 26 again. Notice verses 36 and 37 of Exodus 26. You shall make a screen for the doorway of the tent of blue and purple. Same colors that were used for the veil that divides the holy place from the holy of holies. You shall make five pillars and overlay them with gold and cast five sockets of bronze for them. And you're going to hang this curtain or screen for the doorway on those five pillars. All right. Now, I didn't put this in the diagram when we first laid it out because I was waiting to come to this point in the text. We've actually got a screen or a doorway a first veil of the same color fabric as the fabric of the curtain of the veil itself, what we usually call the veil only. Notice, this is not called a veil in itself. In Exodus, it's called a screen. Some passages translated a doorway. It's not as thick as the curtain veil that divides the holy place from the holy of holies. But nonetheless, you see, there are two barriers so the person who is outside really can't see all the way in and except as somebody goes in and out of that outer screen. All right, so the writer of Hebrews has given us a fairly detailed account summarizing uh, a number of lengthy chapters from Exodus 25 on to 40 about the construction of the tabernacle. But in verse 4, we run into a buzzsaw. Having a golden altar of incense. Now, when I asked you what was in this holy place, you told me about the lampstand, correct? No controversy about that. And you told me about the table of the bread of the presence. No controversy about that. But from this verse in Hebrews 9, where is the altar of incense? 
you assume from the, the sequence between verse 3 and verse 4 that that altar is inside the Holy of Holies. Now, this is a problem. This is a very difficult problem because from the Old Testament, the altar of incense is out here. Yes, it's in front of the Ark of the Covenant, but it's in front of the Ark of the Covenant outside this veil. It's not back here. The writer of Hebrews confused. He made a mistake. Well, that is true. Let's take a look at what he says very carefully. Notice that he says that the Holy of Holies has, is having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. Now, keeping in mind that that participle having may imply having an association with, let's take a look at these passages in Exodus 30, Exodus 40, and 1 Kings 6. We need to look at these passages so that we see what the challenges are to interpreting this. Exodus 30, verse 6. You shall put this altar, and he's talking about the altar of burning incense in verse 1 of Exodus 30. You shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the ark of the testimony, where I will meet with you. The altar of incense is in front of the veil. Okay, it looks like from Exodus 30, we've got it there, correct? All right, now let's take a look at chapter 40. (coughs) Excuse me, chapter 40, verse 26. (coughs) Exodus 40, 26. Moses placed the gold altar, this is the altar of incense again, in the tent of meeting in front of the veil. Two places in Exodus, we've got it in front of the veil. All right, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 22. Now, this is not the tabernacle, but nonetheless, this is the temple, which follows the same architectural floor plan. Solomon overlaid the whole house with gold until the house was finished. Also, the whole altar, which is by the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. Now, that word by can also be translated in Hebrew before, meaning in front of. So, once again, it looks as if 1 Kings 6 and the temple altar of incense is in front of the veil. But, let's go back to Exodus 30 again. 
Here comes the qualification. Or shall we say, here comes the material that complicates this discussion. In Exodus 30, verse 10, we read that Aaron shall make atonement on the horns. What horns? Back up in verse 1, the altar of incense. The horns of the altar of incense once a year. He shall make atonement on it with blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year. Throughout your generations it is most holy to the Lord. On the day of atonement, once a year, when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, he is to make an atonement on the altar of incense, on its horns. He's to sprinkle blood on it. Now, keep that in mind. Once a year, when the high priest ministers in the Holy of Holies, he is to do something to this altar of incense. Leviticus 16, which is the chapter that describes the details of the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, this one day a year, this year it will be next week, October 7 and 8 on the Jewish calendar. Once a year, Day of Atonement, Full description in Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 is a central chapter in the book of Leviticus. It's the hinge upon which the whole book orients. All of it's centered upon it. Verses 12 and 13. Aaron shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. Altar before the Lord. The incense altar. He takes incense with him. And verse 13, he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is in the ark of the testimony, lest he die. So, Aaron takes fire, coals of fire, from the incense altar and goes behind the veil within the Holy of Holies and places the incense on it so that a cloud of smoke envelops that Holy of Holy room. And covers him. So he not only makes atonement for this altar on the Day of Atonement, before he goes into the Holy of Holies, he also takes incense with him and fire coals from this altar before he goes through that veil so that he goes in in a cloud of smoke. Back to Hebrews 9, 4. Does this word having then, that our writer uses here, does this word having refer to this ritual in which the altar of incense was used to perform the Day of Atonement ceremony in the Holy of Holies? It had to be out here for him to begin. It had to be out here for him to make atonement. The writer of the Hebrews is conceivably simply saying that, yes, he has relationship to the ritual of the Day of Atonement behind the Holy of Holies, and so it has that function associated with it. But he does not mean that it was inside the Holy of Holies per se. Ben? In my margin here, it says, 
altar can also be censer. Yes. <clears throat> the uh, the word for the altar of incense in Hebrew and Greek is different. So it's called an alt- a censer. Now, it's bigger than that, okay? But this is the word that the Greek, the Septuagint, uses to translate the word for this altar of incense. Meaning it's a place where you would carry incense in a, a fire pan or in a censer. But, it's, but it is an altar. It's bigger than that. So the word is a little bit misleading according to what we think of, but that is the translation that's used in the Septuagint. All right, now that's my suggestion of a way out of an apparent problem and confusion. I don't think that the writer of Hebrews is contradicting the uh, description in the book of uh, Exodus or Leviticus. I think he's talking about an expanded function of these two items, namely the Holy of Holies as a room and the incense altar as a device. And that function comes to its climax once a year on the Day of Atonement. So that having here means it has an association with what goes on in the Holy of Holies on that day when the high priest enters in. That's my suggestion of an explanation for what appears to be a uh, insurmountable problem. Yes, yeah, sorry. Did, did you point out that Leviticus 16, did you say that there, this altar apparently was inside the veil? No, it's in front of the veil. In front of the veil. It's before the veil. It says that by the veil could be translated in front of or before. So you're saying that in no place in any of these Old Testament books does it describe this altar of incense being in the Holy Spirit? Inside, no. There are no place in the Old Testament where it is placed inside, on the other side, on the nether side, of, in, on this side of the veil. Scott? Just to reaffirm that, are all the before references in the first text you use, is it clear that before means before entering the Holy of Holies rather than before from the point of view of being in the Holy of Holies? Yeah, I think, I think, I think it has to because you have the, the cases in which he's actually making atonement for it, and he's not behind the veil yet. We have an orderly sequence. You know, he can't go behind the veil until he's done all this stuff on the outside in the, in the holy place. All right, now, um, it's interesting what modern commentators do with this verse. They throw up their hands and punt. They virtually ignore it. They may comment about what is the apparent difficulty, but they don't try to resolve it. It's almost as if they think it's insolvable. Now, in fact, it may be insolvable, and you may not be persuaded with my solution, but my suggestion is an attempt to to keep together both descriptions, the Old Testament description in the Pentateuch and in 1 Kings, and also the description that the writer of Hebrews is using here because I am persuaded that this writer is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So he ought to know what he's talking about. Ben, you had a question? You had your hand up or somebody had their hand up? Yeah, oh, Terry, I'm sorry. Uh, so you're telling me that you, when he takes the hot coals in, this creates the, the cloud... Uh, Around. Yes, to hide, to hide him from the glory of God. Yeah. You, you know, if you put incense on hot coals, it creates smoke. 
Well, maybe you don't because you're not Hindus or Buddhists or anything like that or Roman Catholics. But that, but that's what happens when you do it. <laughs> if any of you burn incense in your house, you, you, you have a flame and you, you put this little bit of incense on it, poof, you've got a big a cloud. Of, some, some people like to use it for fragrance in uh, deodorizing their house. Uh, you know, it makes me sneeze. But at any rate, at any rate that's what happens. Uh, and this incense, incidentally, this frankincense, this is really expensive stuff, and it's actually high-powered. I mean, this is concentrated smoke as soon as it, expo- as soon as it burns. There's a lot of it in there because they, you know, they pack it and hammer it and, and pile it together so that, you know, this, this, this is a little super packet. Scott? Is it pretty clear that the dimensions of that veil went all the way to the floor? It's not like you had a table that, that yes. went to the floor. No. No, no. The, the, the hangings inside and outside are all the way to the ground. All right, now that brings us to the uh, pot of manna, which is the next item. The Ark of the Covenant and the pot of manna. So let's take the, uh, the jar of the pot of manna first. The manna begins to be granted or descend upon the children of Israel in Exodus 16, even before they come to Mount Sinai. In Exodus 16, 33 and 34, having received the first wave of manna in the wilderness, Moses is told to say to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna before the Lord to be kept through your generations. And the Lord commanded Moses, so as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony. What's the testimony? <coughs> the Ark of the Covenant. All right, now, here, Exodus 16. We don't have the giving of the Ten Commandments yet, Exodus 20. We don't have the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. We don't have any tabernacle yet. So he says he lays it up before the Ark of the Covenant. We don't have any Ark of the Covenant yet. All right, so in terms of chronology, obviously this is a fast-forward device here as Moses writes up the narrative. In other words, he's telling you what happened to it eventually. But we don't have any tabernacle yet for to, to put it in. Nonetheless, it's going to be preserved in a golden jar. Now, the next passage to consider is chapter 25 of Exodus, verse 16 and verse 21. You shall put into the ark the testimony, and you shall put a mercy seat on top of the ark, And in the ark you shall put the testimony which I shall give to you. So that explains the word testimony back in chapter 16. We know that the testimony are the tablets that were put inside the ark. Finally, chapter 40 and verse 20 of Exodus. They took the testimony and put it into the ark and attach the poles and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. Now, Deuteronomy 10 will also 
repeat this, verses 2 and 5. I will write on tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered, and you shall put them in the ark. Remember, Moses had broken the first two tablets when he came down from Mount Sinai with the golden, with the golden calf. And in verse 5, I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark, which I had made there. So the tablets are in the ark, but there's no mention in those other passages of the manna being in the ark. So we go back to Exodus 16, and we take a look at that passage once again, and we notice that it says, put it before the Lord. Put it before the Lord. Was it laid outside the Ark of the Covenant? And then according to Hebrews 9.4, later on put inside the Ark of the Covenant. Because by the time we come to 1 Kings 8.9, even though this is not the tabernacle, but this is the pattern of the tabernacle, notice what is said about Solomon's temple. 1 Kings 8, 9, there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. What's going on here? Exodus 16 clearly says that it was put before the Ark of the Covenant, and yet the rest of Exodus says only the tablets are in that Ark. And by the time we get to Solomon's Temple, there's nothing in that Ark except the tablets. Specifically. Explicitly. Well, there's something else that the writer of Hebrews says was in that Ark. Aaron's rod that budded. So now we have another story, number 17. And the 10th verse of number 17. The Lord said to Moses, put the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels. Here's this word before, same word that we had in Exodus 16 when we were talking about the jar of manna. Is Aaron's rod put in front of the Ark of the Covenant and subsequently, for some other reason, then put inside? But by the time we get to Solomon's Temple, there's nothing in the Ark except the tablets of the Covenant. Hmm. Interesting narrative. Okay, I want to come back to Aaron's rod in a moment. But this is my suggestion for the chronology of the history of the pot of manna and Aaron's rod. In Exodus 16, we are told that the pot of manna is in fact put in front 
of the ark, not inside. In the rest of the book of Exodus, we do not find, and in Deuteronomy, we do not find any indication that the pot of manna is inside the ark. So, at the time, approximately, of Moses' death, there is no pot of manna inside the ark. It is in front of it. The same is true of Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod doesn't come into the story until number 17. And there, it is put before the ark. But by the time we get to Solomon's temple, there's nothing inside the ark except tablets of stone. Between, then, the finishing of the wandering in the wilderness and the crossing of the Jordan and Solomon's temple, something happened to that pot of manna and that rod of Aaron. Were they placed inside for transport? In other words, were they carried inside the ark as they marched across the Jordan River and up into the promised land? Perfectly conceivable that they would have wanted to have a portable way of carrying them. So they put them inside the ark and they stayed inside the ark. But by the time Solomon built his temple, they disappeared. It wasn't raiders of the lost ark. No, it wasn't even the Philistines. The Philistines captured the ark, you remember? But they sent it back. And when the children of Israel looked inside, thousands of them died when it came back. Well, when they looked inside, did they see the pot of manna and Aaron's rod and the tablets of stone? We don't know. Scripture's silent. But from what Solomon says, it's conceivable that even at that point, in the time of the judges, the pot of manna and the rod had disappeared from the story. So my suggestion is, they were in front of it. At some point, at the end of the wilderness sojourn, they were placed in it. They remained in it. But by the time we get to Solomon's time, they are not in it any longer. In fact, they're not even around. They've disappeared. For whatever reason, we are not told. That's my suggestion to another conundrum in this, shall we say, architecture of the tabernacle. All right, now, I wanted to make another statement about Aaron's rod. If you still have number 17 open, you will remember that that was the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in chapter 16 where the earth opened up and swallowed Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and their household, including their little children. Now, that rebellion was a challenge to the authority of Moses and Aaron. You remember, they said that Moses and Aaron had assumed too much power and therefore, in a good democratic fashion, well, not really, because they're just simply tin horn tyrants like most politicians. All right, so in good democratic fashion, they say, well, you know, we're going to have a vote. 
Well, not really. They just wanted to overthrow Moses. So God intervenes and says, okay, every tribe take a rod, and the tribe of Levi take their rod and lay them up before the Lord, and the rod that buds, that will be an indication of who has the authority from God to direct the children of Israel. In the meantime, the earth had devoured Korodath and Abiram and their households. Well, in chapter 20, fast, fast forward three chapters, go to Numbers chapter 20. A chapter opens with the death of Miriam, verse 1, notice that. Chapter ends, verse 29, with the death of Aaron, hmm, notice that. We've got a frame around Numbers 20, the death of Miriam and Aaron. Now in verse 7, the Lord says, take the rod. What rod? The rod. What rod? Aaron's rod? Hmm. That's the only rod that seems to fit. It's the only rod that's an antecedent. Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as God had commanded him, verse 10, and Moses gathered the assembly and said, Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And Moses is told by God that he will not go into the promised land. He's going to die out there. Death of Miriam outside, death of Aaron outside, death of Moses outside the promised land. Very interesting pattern here. Why? Why does God bar Moses from going into the promised land? He allows him to see it, so he enters into it by his eyesight. But he doesn't allow him to cross the Jordan. Why? Well, But why? It's the rod. No, not that. It's the rod. It's the rod. Because Moses in Numbers 20 is like Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, isn't he? He's rebelling against God. God didn't say, strike that rock. God said, speak to the rock. God didn't say, lecture the children of Israel with contempt. Look, you rebels. You're the rebel, Moses. You're not even doing what I told you to do. You haven't sanctified me before this people. You haven't kept my word. You haven't executed my command. You have added to my word. And in addition to that, you've taken upon yourself the prerogative to determine how you're going to get water out of this rock when I told you how to do it. What's the difference between you, Moses, and Korah, Dathan, and Abiram? Why shouldn't I let the ground open up and swallow you up? Because the issue with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram was God's authority, Moses and Aaron's authority, and the rod as a symbol of that authority which blossomed while they died. But here in Numbers 20, what has Moses done? 
He's turned the paradigm on its head. It's Moses' authority and the rod, and God is last, and the death of Moses outside the land. You see the mirror here? The mirror of God's penalty of Moses is that he is a reflection of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And it's only because the mercy of God allows him to die under the hand of God where God buries him on Mount Nebo, allowing him to see the land of promise from afar, but barring him from entering it. It's only the hand of God's mercy and grace upon Moses that he isn't consumed in the bowels of Sheol as well as Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. But that's the key. That's the key to the story. The duplicate narratives are reflecting upon the rebellious character of the individuals who are questioning the ultimate authority of God. And Moses is doing that very same thing. Standing in the shoes of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, almost like by proxy. And had God not covered him in the hollow of his hand, he would have descended into Sheol as well. All right, so this rod then becomes a symbol or a reflection of the, the uh, theocratic descent of sovereignty and authority from God to his servant, his anointed servant, his appointed servant. And the rod is a sign of his office. And if that servant uses that sign of office wrongly, then he is chastised and disciplined. So no, I'm not quibbling with the fact that the law can't take you into the promised land, that's, but that's not the point of the narrative. See, the point of the narrative is to place these two stories about this rod three chapters away from one another as a mirror reflection so that you understand why Moses is barred. He's barred for his rebellion. That's the key to the resolution of why Moses is penalized so severely for what seems to be a fairly innocuous act of striking a rock. No, 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 no. This is not an innocuous act. This is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God and not do what he told you to do. All right, any questions about that? Disciplined. I don't want to say punished, okay? This is chastisement. This is not condign wrath. Korah, Dathan, and Omiram, they get punished. This is condign wrath. They go down into the pit of Sheol. Really, they go down into the pit of hell. Barred from the promised land for the same reason? I think implicitly. Implicitly, if not explicitly. All right, we're going to come to chapter 12 of Hebrews. We talk about the distinction between punishment, condign wrath, and discipline, chastisement, correction. Those are two very different things. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, they get punishment. Moses gets discipline. All right, we didn't get very far, but I told you. Festinilente, festinilente. 
All right, we are going to resume next week <laughs> and go on. But I can't avoid the challenging exegetical issues in the text. Regardless of what the modern commentators do with it or not, we have to face them. And therefore, my proposed solutions, take them for what they're worth. Bonsoir, and angels sing thee to thy rest.